key lesson that I have learned in recent years about prayer is this. In order to sustain a heart for prayer and in order to sustain a movement of prayer in a church or in a city, you have to talk about something else besides prayer first. And I'm going to talk about two things besides prayer first. I want to tell you what those are and then move into the third and final point which would be the awesome place of prayer. The first thing that I have found that I need to think about and talk about in my own heart and in my church is war. That life is war. I don't think it's possible for people to even know what prayer is until they know that life is war. And that the stakes are higher than in the Persian Gulf and in the consultations between Reagan and Gorbachev and there is no peace till Jesus comes. The second thing that I have had to think about and talk about before I can get to first base in creating an atmosphere for prayer or have strength to sustain prayer is the sovereignty of God. Because until we grasp the sovereignty of God, we don't know whether we're going to win the war. And if you're not sure you're going to win the war, you cannot sustain the strength to pray day and night the way Jesus calls us to pray. You can't pray long without hope. And you can't have hope without the sovereignty of God. And then my third point will be once you've understood that life is war, once you've understood the sovereignty of God assuring the victory, what is the place of prayer in the global purposes of God? So that's my outline. And uh, I would just like to continue for another 30 seconds or so that great murmuring of prayer as I lead you and ask the Lord's help. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Satan and all his power is very much against what we're about to say. And therefore, a lot of demonic activity is very likely in this room unless in answer to the prayers of this your people you would mightily banish demons and Satan and all the powers of darkness from our presence. Come, Lord Jesus, by your spirit and reign. Take control of every heart and mind and be pleased to rule over our lives in these moments. Assist me, please, as I try to unfold your word. Glorify your name, Lord Jesus, not only for the sake of your Father's honor, but for the sake of the hidden peoples of this world and those who are starving for the gospel at our door. In your great name, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. 
Life is war. That's point number one. When Paul came to the end of his life, you know that great text in 2 Timothy 4, 7? I have fought the fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. Earlier in 1 Timothy, you remember he said to the young man, fight the good fight. Lay hold on eternal life. Now you take those two texts and you put them together, you can conclude this. Life is war just to maintain faith and get to heaven. Anybody says it's downhill to heaven hasn't read Paul. It's fight all the way to heaven. Fight, Timothy, and lay hold on eternal life. Satan targets unbelief. That is, he tries to create unbelief by targeting faith. Paul makes that very clear in 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 5. I wrote to you because I couldn't stand wanting to find out about your faith lest the tempter had tempted you and all that we had done be in vain. What would make everything be in vain? Satan's targeting faith. It is war to maintain belief. Move a step farther and you come to Paul's statements about his own life and warfare in the ministry. I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I pommel my body and subdue it, lest after preaching to others I should find my, myself disqualified. Now that's the language of a soldier talking about the rigors and the disciplines in mortal conflict. Move a step farther when he talks about his ministry further. That was 1 Corinthians 9.26. This is 2 Corinthians 10.3. Though we live in the world, we are not, not carrying on a worldly war. For the weapons of our warfare are not worldly, but have divine power. So ministry is war. Fighting for faith in my heart is war. Fighting for the souls of men is war. All aspects of the Christian life are war. And if I were to ask you, what's the most crucial text on warfare? You would all say, what? Ephesians 6. Let's read a little bit of it. Ephesians 6, 12. We are not contending against flesh and blood. We are contending against principalities and powers and the world rulers of this present darkness and spiritual forces, hosts in the heavenly places. Therefore, clothe yourself or put on the armor of God that you might be able to withstand and stand. And then comes the list of the armor. Life is war. The enemy is awesome. And you can't see him. Most people do not believe this. How are you ever going to get them to pray when they don't believe it? I mean, they, they'll say they believe it. But watch their lives. And there is a peacetime casualness in the church. A casualness about spiritual things. There are no bombs falling in their lives. No bullets whizzing overhead. No mines to be avoided. No roars on the horizon. It's all well 
in America, the Disneyland of the universe. Why pray? In wartime, newspapers carry headlines about how the troops are doing. In wartime, families get together and they talk about the sons and the daughters on the front lines and they pray with wrenching concern for their safety. In wartime, they're alert, they're armed, they're vigilant. In wartime, they spend their money so differently than in peacetime. There's austerity and simplicity of life, not because those are valuable in themselves, but because there's something so grand, there's such a great cause to spend your money on rather than padding your den. In wartime, everybody is touched. We all cut back the luxury liner. You've read that great story that Ralph Winter has in the Perspectives book. The luxury liner becomes the troop carrier. And once where they slept three, they sleep nine. Once where they had place settings of 15, they're tin plates. Everything changes in wartime. And so, it's clear people don't believe we're in a war. Every house has a candle till the boys come home in wartime. People don't believe that we're in a war that's worse than World War II, that is worse than any imaginable nuclear World War III. The casualties don't just lose an arm. They don't just lose a leg. They don't just lose one life. They lose everything forever in hell. I mean, if we believed that life is war, how different things would be. Now, the connection with prayer and war is not left to our guesswork. Ephesians 6.17, listen to this connection. Sometimes the translations break the sentence up, miss the flow, but I'll read it the way it really is. Ephesians 6.17, take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, with all prayer, don't start a new sentence there, with all prayer and supplication, praying on every occasion in the Spirit, keeping awake with all perseverance. Now, all, it doesn't take any exegetical ability at all to see. Prayer is the power that wields the weapon. The sword of the Spirit, take it praying. Take it praying, right? It's the power that wields the weapons of warfare. Prayer is not a civilian device. Now here's a text from John chapter 15 verse 16 that takes a little bit of exegetical finesse because not everybody is used to attending to conjunctions I'm gonna read it very slowly and I want you to listen for the word so that and if you've got an NIV they break the sentence and start with then take that then as a logical not a temporal then this is an absolutely crucial, logical connection if you're to understand the point of prayer in a life of war. John 15, 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, He may give it to you. Now, Think. Put on your thinking caps. Do you get it? Why is the Father 
going to answer the prayers that we make in Jesus' name? Answer, because Jesus has given a mission to go bear fruit or turn it around. Why did Jesus give us a mission to go bear fruit that would remain? So that we could enjoy getting answers to prayer. Therefore, why is there prayer? For war. For wartime, not for civilian times. So I never tire of telling Bethlehem Baptist Church the number one reason why Prayer malfunctions in the hands of believers is because they try to take a wartime walkie-talkie and turn it into a domestic intercom by which they ring up the maid to bring another pillow. It malfunctions. It's made for tanks. It's made for trenches. It's made for war. It won't work when you install it in your yacht. <laughs> It won't work at the lake cabin. It won't work in the second and third and fourth car. Amen. So I want to give you a little rhyme. I didn't know it was a rhyme until I read my manuscript the second time. Just like that sentence. <laughs> until we believe that life is war, we will not know what prayer is for. Will that stick? Until we believe that life is war, we will not know what prayer is for. Here's what I believe has happened. God sent His Son into the world on a mission. The Son comes to us and says, My Father wants me to extend my mission to you. It's dangerous. You can't lose. The mission will succeed. He's given me these transmitters here. I'll give each one of you a transmitter. They're coded to the general's frequency. As long as you stay in battle, fighting his war in his ways, you will always have free access, access by the transmitter to the general. Now go and use them. And I'll do whatever you ask for the war, for the cause. But what have millions of Americans done? They've stopped believing in war. Life is peace, not war. There's no urgency. There's no watching. There's no vigilance. There's no strategic planning. Just easy peacetime prosperity. And they take the walkie-talkie and they try to install it in domestic places, in luxurious places, and it won't work. They can't figure out why it's not working. It malfunctions. They're not getting any signals. And so my first point this morning is if we're going to mobilize a movement of prayer in our churches and our cities, if we're going to just sustain a heart for prayer, we've just got to believe and feel that life is war. We must get into our minds a wartime mentality and get out of our minds the peacetime mentality that is driven into our minds all day long by television and radio and the newspapers and the magazines. They all say, don't you believe it? Pad your life. Peace. Peace when there is no peace. 
until we feel the desperation of a bombing raid and the thrill of a new strategic offensive we'll never pray with the spirit of Jesus that's point number one point number two we must talk first and think first about the sovereignty of God before we talk about prayer now why is this why is embracing the sovereignty of God utterly essential to a heart for prayer and a movement of prayer and I have two reasons one if you don't embrace the sovereignty of God you cannot consistently pray for God to convert unbelieving sinners secondly if you do not embrace the sovereignty of God then you can't be sure the cause of Christ will triumph there's no reason to think it would now let me take those one at a time first until we embrace the sovereignty of God you cannot consistently pray that God would save unbelieving sinners which is what world missions is all about you can't pray what Paul prayed in Romans 10 1 my heart's desire and prayer to God is that they might be saved not that he would just toy with them influence them a little bit here a little bit there push a little here draw a little there but save them God you can't pray like that if you don't believe in the sovereignty of God it's inconsistent now there are a lot of people who don't believe in the sovereignty of God at this point now by the sovereignty of God I mean God's right and power to save sinners I better be more careful God's right and power to save unbelieving sinners to bring them to faith there are many people who say God has no right to intrude upon the soul of a human being and meddle with his self-determining autonomy those people cannot pray I believe consistently for the salvation of sinners why not well, I'll give you an illustration in a minute you take the biblical promises of the new covenant this is the way I pray I don't know how, how you pray for unbelievers I take new covenant promises and pray them for unbelievers for example Ezekiel 11 9 oh God take out of their heart the heart of stone and put in the heart of flesh Deuteronomy 30 verse 6 Lord circumcise their hearts that they might love you Ezekiel 36 27 father put a new spirit within them and cause them to walk in your statutes 2 Timothy 2.25 Lord, grant them to repent and to come to a knowledge of the truth. 
Acts 16, 14. Lord, do what you did for Lydia. Open their hearts to believe the truth. You pray like that? You can't if you don't believe in the sovereignty of God. Because then you'd be inconsistent. You'd be contradicting your own theology. If you don't believe in the sovereignty of God, then you say that a human being has the absolute sovereign right to be the final determiner of his own destiny and thus to determine who will inhabit the kingdom of heaven, if anybody. I don't think that's biblical to give man that right. Well, how do people pray then who reject the sovereignty of God? Well, just read some books. I'll, I'll, I'll give you some examples and show you how inconsistent I think it is. I take these from books that are on your book table. <laughs> One well-known writer on prayer says, what you should pray is to ask God to cause a specific person to begin questioning whom they can really trust in life. Now my question is, why is it right for God to get inside a person's mind and cause their mind to ask a question that they wouldn't have otherwise asked and wrong for God to get in their mind and cause them to give an answer that they wouldn't have otherwise given? Namely, that Jesus is the answer. Here's another example. This writer says, what we ought to pray is that God will plant in the hearts of these people an inner unrest together with a longing to know the truth. And I say, Amen. But, I ask, how strong a longing should you pray for God to put in a person's heart? There are two kinds of longing God could put in a person's heart. A longing that's strong enough to embrace Jesus and a longing that's not strong enough to embrace Jesus. Which do you pray for? Do you pray for ineffectual longings and thus not pray for conversion? Or do you pray for e effectual longings and thus pray for conversion but not give that person the final right of self-determination anymore? You see, you, you, you cannot pray consistently that God would save unbelieving sinners unless you believe that God has the right and the authority to work in the human heart to bring a person to believe, to overcome resistance. Sometimes, you know, Calvinists like me talk about irresistible grace. That's a very misleading phrase. Irresistible grace. Grace is resisted all over the place. The question is, can God overcome it? He did for me. He did for you. Can God overcome resistance? Sure, people are hard-hearted. Stephen accused the Jews of resisting the Holy Spirit all their life. That wasn't teaching that God couldn't overcome it if He wanted to. How in the world did you get saved? Did not God overcome your rebellion and your resistance? You see where this leads? People who really believe that man must have the ultimate power of self-determination, which means the determination of who gets into the kingdom of heaven in the end, cannot pray consistently for the conversion of unbelieving sinners. Paul left no doubt in my mind at least when he said Romans 9:16 it depends not upon man's will or exertion but upon God's 
mercy. And so he prays in Romans 10.1, Oh my God, I love my kinsmen according to the flesh. If I had the choice, I'd go to hell for them. Would you save them? Which I think paraphrased means, would you overcome the hardness that has come upon Israel? Overcome it! And then it says in chapter 11 someday it's going to be overcome when the full number of the Gentiles comes in. That hardness is going to be overcome and ungodliness will be banished from Jacob. By whom? God. He is sovereign. And so I, I encourage you to pray, God, take out of their flesh the heart of stone. God, circumcise their hearts so that they love you. God, put your spirit into them and cause them to walk in your statutes. God, grant them repentance and that they come to, to the knowledge of the truth. God, open their hearts like you did Lydia to believe the gospel. And then, when you believe in the sovereignty of God, when you believe that God has the right and the power to move upon the heart of a dead sinner and bring them to life, then you will be able to pray. That's the first reason why I think the sovereignty of God must be spoken of before we speak of prayer. Here's the second reason. We can't be sure that we're going to win the war unless God is sovereign. We can't be sure that our prayers will succeed and that the cause of Christ will triumph. Let me tell you a story. The first missionary endeavor of England was born in an atmosphere where men and women believed the sovereignty of God. And they had a hope for the conquering of this world for Christ that was absolutely indomitable. They believed Psalm 86.8 All nations thou hast made shall come and bow down before thee, O Lord, and shall glorify thy name. They believed Genesis 12.3 Thee, all the families of the earth will be blessed. They believed Psalm 2.8, I'll give thee the nations for thine inheritance. They believed Psalm 22.27, All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations shall worship before thee. They believed Psalm 65.2 and 66.4 and 86.9 and 102.15. I won't read them all to you. Psalm 47.9, The princes of the peoples gather as the people of God of Abraham, for the shields of the earth belong to God. And they took seriously the oath that God took in Numbers 14, 21, as I live, says the Lord, and as this world will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God. They believed that because they believed in the sovereignty of God. They could look upon Hindu millions and Muslim millions and Buddhist millions and believe Christ would triumph because He's sovereign. 150 years before William Carey, there was a man living, thriving in this milieu. His name was John Eliot. He came in 1631 to this country, to New England. He was 27 years old that year. The next year he became the pastor of a new little church in Roxbury just outside Boston in those days. 
And something happened to him when he was a pastor. It's happened to more of us. According to Cotton Mather, who told his story, there were 20 tribes of Indians surrounding Boston. And he uses the name nations of Indians in order to tie it in with these biblical statements. Nations. He was very up-to-date in his missiology. They were nations of Indians. Well, John Eliot could not resist for long the implications of his theology. If the Bible is inerrant, and if God is sovereign, then someone who gives his life to taking the message of this God to one of these nations has good hope to believe that this sovereign God would open a door for the gospel and build a church. And when he was 40 years old, I'm 42, so when he was 40, just my age, he started learning Algonquin. Algonquin has, has words in it that are 23 letters long. Cotton Mather gives some of them. He deciphered the vocabulary, the grammar, the syntax. He translated the whole Bible into Algonquin. He translated Richard Baxter's Call to the Unconverted into Algonquin. He started little schools. By the time John Eliot was 84 years old, there were Indian churches all over the area, many of them pastored by Indian pastors, a little Bible institute, all of which vanished very shortly because of wars. He said near the end of his life, prayers and pains through faith in Jesus can do anything. Why? Because nothing is too hard for a sovereign prayer-hearing God. And the reason I tell you this story is because I can't sustain in my own heart the will to pray, nor beget and sustain a movement of prayer in my church and in Minneapolis unless I have hope that we're going to win, that the cause of Christ is going to triumph in the end, that all the nations shall come and bow down before thee, O Lord, and glorify thy name. That was the Puritan mind. And in that milieu grew up the, the modern missionary movement, tutored on that tradition of Puritan hope in the sovereignty of God was William Carey and Adoniram Judson and David Brainerd and Alexander Duff and David Livingston and John Patton and a whole stream of great lights in those days. The modern missionary movement as we know it today did not emerge in a theological vacuum. It emerged in a great Reformation tradition that exalted the sovereignty of God and put it the square at the center of life. Without it, the confidence, the largeness, the perseverance, the boldness of prayer begins to vanish, and what's left is kind of a vestige that we often know as the prayer meeting. It's weak, it's uninspired, it's small-minded, because very little has been said about these things before prayer. Life is war and God is sovereign. Now finally, what's the place of prayer in this great global purpose of God? And I hope you've seen in some of those texts that I mentioned what God's purpose is. Let me sum it up in this sentence, what I think God's purpose in the world is. God's purpose in creation and redemption in all the universe is to banish all unbelief and sin out of his kingdom 
and fill the earth with his glory by filling it with white-hot worshipers from every people and tongue and tribe and nation. Filling the earth with white-hot, reverberating, mirror-like worshipers before the throne of God. Now what's the place of prayer in the accomplishment of that purpose? Now here I have to be very careful because speakers on prayer tend to overstate the case at this point. I've heard it twice in the last couple of years by major spokesmen in major gatherings. I think they have overstated the case for prayer. And depending on how you underline the title of my message, I think it's a bad title. If you underline the word THE, I think it's a bad title. Prayer, THE work of missions. Now let me tell you why. I believe THE work of missions is the proclamation of the gospel. The work of missions is spreading the Word of God. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. But how shall they call upon Him whom they not believed? And how shall they believe in one they've not heard about? And how shall they hear without a preacher? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. The Gospel is the power of God unto salvation. We were born again not with perishable seed but imperishable by the living and abiding Word of God. The Gospel of the Kingdom must first be preached through all the world and then the end will come. The Word of God is the weapon that God designs to penetrate the darkness of this world to gather the children of light and bring his redemptive plan to consummation. That means that the global purposes of God hang on the success of his word. It hangs on whether you and I proclaim a faithful and powerful gospel. If the preaching of the Word aborts, all the purposes of God abort. But that can't happen, can it? For as the snow and the rain come down from heaven and return not thither, but water the earth, causing it to spring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so will my word be that goes forth from my mouth, says the Lord. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish that for which I sent it and prosper in all that I purpose. Yes, all the global purposes of God hang on the success of the preaching of the gospel. But no, it cannot fail. He is sovereign. But now once you've made clear that the Word is the weapon that will penetrate the darkness of the peoples, gather the children of light, get victory over the world, then you must ask. Now we're prepared to ask without exaggeration about the awesome place of prayer in this purpose.
And I would put it like this. If the accomplishment of God's purposes hang on the success of His Word, the success of His Word hangs upon the prayers of God's people. If we don't succeed in earnest, global, persevering prayer, God's purposes abort. But that can't happen either. Because He will pour out a spirit of supplication in those last days. Whether you pray or not is not ultimately in your control. God will get prayer done. He reigns. He makes salvation contingent upon faith and He rules over faith. He makes missions contingent upon His Word and He rules over His Word. He makes the success of His Word, success of his word dependent on prayer and He rules over whether we pray. If you don't pray, God doesn't fail. He will pass you by and get His prayers in another land. Maybe He will in America. I don't know. But I'm going to break my back in Minneapolis that it not happen there. That He not pass my church by. That He not pass our city by. I will pour myself out for prayer 88 at the dome. The Lord reigns. If I fail, He doesn't fail. Let me just give you texts as I close that link prayer to the victory of the Word. Ephesians 6.19 Pray for me. Don't miss that. He's talking to a church. Pray for me that utterance may be given me out of my mouth to speak boldly the mystery of Christ. The mystery hangs on the prayer. Colossians 4.3 Pray for us that God may open to us a door for the Word to declare the mystery of Christ. Let me stick in a parenthesis here. I am so tired of reading statistics in all kinds of mission journals that by the year 2000, 82% of all the hidden peoples will be in countries inaccessible to missionaries. I just want to scream every time I read that. How do you know? How do you know that? My goodness, the Lord reigns over China. He reigns over Albania. He reigns over Afghanistan. What a terrible prediction to make. You can say, maybe, but don't treat it like it's a foregone conclusion. When Paul says, pray for us that a door would be opened, isn't he saying prayer smashes doors down for the Word to get in? Or here's my last one. 2 Thessalonians 3.1 Pray for us that the Word of the Lord may run and be glorified. Four years ago, I said to my people, in the first Sunday of the year, I said, would you do something for me eight seconds a day for the rest of this year? How many of you would? What I want you to do is pray this. Father, in accord with 2 Thessalonians 3.1, today, in my life and in the world, cause Your Word to run and triumph. Amen. It was a great year at Bethlehem. It was the year I wrote this book. And so I felt born along. Such a simple thing. Prayer is the power that wields the weapon of the Word. Prayer is a walkie-talkie on the battlefield of the world. 
It calls in the accurate location for the target of the word. Where should we go? All you mission agencies. You pray like this, don't you? Oh, commander, what's the most strategic and tactical move for the word next? That's what prayer's for. Or prayer on this walkie-talkie is for calling in protection and air cover for the troops. Prayer on this walkie-talkie is for calling in firepower to blast open doors where it seems like the Word is running up against uh, fences and walls. The walkie-talkie is intended to call in miraculous healing to heal the wounded soldiers. I'll tell you, we've just begun to taste the experience of power and healing in this land. Two stories in my... Uh, prayer meeting last Wednesday night as I was there rather than coming down here were just terrific about how the elders gathered around one of the young women in our church and prayed for her. She was getting ready to go to the hospital the next day and she went and all the symptoms were gone and they thought they were going to have to do surgery. And our elders were so excited, or deacons we call them, they didn't know what to do. It wasn't their great faith. They weren't really expecting anything to happen. And God is so gracious to take us by the hand as little babies in this whole issue of controversial power evangelism and nurture us in a biblical way just to find a biblical way not to say no to a gift. The walkie-talkie is for calling in needed reinforcements. You know, one of the most significant texts at, in my life in my church is Matthew 9.38. This group ought to know that by heart. Pray the Lord of the harvest that He might send laborers into His harvest. Now, I know that's not a military image, but it's easy to transfer, isn't it? Pray the commander-in-chief to send reinforcements to the front lines. I'll talk more about this to the pastors this afternoon, but, but I began in, in early 1983 to pray that every day for my church. It's, it's such a clear command, isn't it? The Lord, the commander, just standing up there looking down at a pastor and says, would you ask me to send some of your people to missions? Just, would you ask me? Would you tell me to do this? I mean, it is so amazing that God talks to us in this way. It's like the commander says, use the walkie-talkie. You're in danger. The bullets are flying. The bombs are falling. Get on it. Get on it. I'll send them. And we're kind of there treating it like a domestic intercom, not even knowing we're in a war sometimes. I close with a verse that's been the most conscience-pricking verse in my prayer walk with regard to missions. It's Luke 18, verses 7 and 8. I'll read it for you. It's in a parable that you know about praying perseveringly, and it's in a context of the second coming. Jesus says, Will not God vindicate His elect who cry to Him day and night? Will He delay long over them? I tell you, He will vindicate them speedily. Now let me ask you, do, do you cry out, How long, O oh Lord? How long until your cause triumph in the world? How long till you rend the heavens and come down with your Spirit upon the church? How long until you vindicate the elect and cause your name to be glorified in this world? How long, O oh Lord? And do you hear the answer coming back from this text? Over whom will he not delay? 
To what church will He come speedily? The church that cries to Him for vindication day and night. And I just, I just collapsed before that verse. Do I as a pastor plead day and night for the vindication of the cause of Christ in Minneapolis and Albania? Let's pray. Almighty God and Heavenly Father, if I have said anything that is untrue, or if anything is out of balance, or if I have not had a spirit that accords with the truth, blot it out for the sake of this people and forgive. And whatever has been true and biblical, oh God, may it be like a balm and like a rapier. May it encourage and may it convict. Be pleased, Lord, to make us have a wartime mentality. Be pleased to give us strong confidence in your sovereignty. Be pleased to make us use the weapon of your word effectively and grant that we would pray day and night for the vindication of your cause. So speedily, Lord, hasten, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus, even as we continue praying now for just three or four minutes in our prayer huddles. Would you just pray as the Lord leads? And we'll be closed with music in just a moment.